Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Well, Virginia, we talked about revisiting some of the books that we read as young children. Yes. So this is a bit of a nostalgic episode yes, for, I love for it. both of us. And I gave some thought to this and it was so difficult to pick my top two or top three. And when I think about the books that I read as a small child, many of them were actually books that had been previously read to me yes. when I was very young. And then a few years later, when I was reading independently, I naturally was attracted to go back to those books. And I think that's because they were sort of familiar and easy. Yes, there's a comfort in them, there isn't is. there? There is. And I, I almost wanted to have a relationship with the characters myself. So you know how you reach for an old book? Mm. I, st- I still reach mm. for old books, old adult books. Mm. And I think I was doing the same thing. So I grew up in England and we had a beautiful wood at the back of our house, um, which was full of bluebells every spring. We had plenty of outside play. That sounds idyllic, Louise. I know. It was. It was. It was picture. Oh. It was picture book. Even though we lived in a city, we were surrounded by parks oh. and woods. And so I had a lot of time in with you know with trees and nature and and so I did love books about animals and I loved books about animals that had secret lives and, I, and I'm sure I did think for a while they really did have secret lives and so the ones that stand out for me before I was say five would be Alison Utley's Little Grey Rabbit series. And Alison Utley wrote a lot of children's books. I think she wrote about a hundred children's books, oh, if my not goodness. more. But in the Little Grey Rabbit series, we meet this beautiful little rabbit and her friends, oh. Squirrel, oh, cute. Uh, who's a girl, Mouldy Warp, who's a mole, Fuzzy Peg the Hedgehog, who is the son of the postman, uh, and Hare. Hare is quite a character, uh, and Water Rat. And they they have these very simple adventures and mishaps by day and by night, and then it's all mixed up with a healthy dose of little grey rabbits sorting out their problems because she's very sensible and she's very gentle. And they were published in 1929 and the stories really just represent a love of the countryside. And the countryside is revealed to the reader in incredible detail. And the stories are accompanied by the most exquisite illustrations by an artist of the time called Margaret Tempest. And they're the most beautiful, intricate drawings of Little Grey Rabbit's home and her friends and their exquisite clothing and the food that they ate and their possessions and then all the surrounding countryside that I mentioned. And the illustrations often really make those Absolutely. books, don't they? And, they? and they really do for, for this series because, you know, obviously Beatrix Potter's books mm. were around at the same time and they were extremely popular, but it's a sort of a different style of illustration. I think Margaret Tempest's work was much finer and it's almost as if each illustration on the page is a painting. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're really, really beautiful. 
It's interesting because I read recently that there's a, there was a rivalry between Alison Utley and Beatrix Potter, but I think it was mostly of Alison Utley's doing. Oh, how interesting. She actually moved to the same town. Good heavens. That Beatrix Potter lived in, in Derbyshire, in England. And I think her journals were released in early 2000s, maybe 2009. And then suddenly people discovered how much she despised oh. Beatrix Potter. <laughs> From what was in her journal. How fascinating. Um, Do you think it was just competitiveness? I think so. She's just full of um, disparaging comments. She she refers to spying Beatrix Potter in the butchers (laughs) and she describes her her physical appearance in a really quite unpleasant way. (laughs) And uh, she basically thought that Beatrix Potter was simply an illustrator who made the illustrations fit the stories, whereas she was, you know, a great tail spinner who of course didn't illustrate it yes, at all yes how interesting so I thought that was, that was sort of fascinating the other book that I loved and look still love and read it to my children over and over again was Wind in the Willows by Kenneth oh, Graham yes and that was probably the first book that I had been introduced to when I was very young that then returned to there was a real it was almost a novel it was 12 chapters quite meaty chapters and it you know the story developed and so Kenneth Graham was a Scottish writer and he wanted to go to Oxford University and read English but he uh, his guardian who looked after him couldn't afford it Ah. so he sent him off to the Bank of England And Kenneth Graham actually rose through the ranks of the Bank of England and eventually became the secretary of the Bank of England and then retired, I think, in his 50s through ill health. And he had one child. As far as I know, Wind in the Willows are actually the stories that he told his son at bedtime. And then upon retirement, he actually wrote the book. Wow. And I think even Toad in Wind in the Willows is based on his headstrong, headstrong son. So Wind in the Willows is about friendship. Um, There's about four main characters, various others as well, but these four characters, these four animals, all prop each other up at different stages of the story and they all have human characteristics. And I think there's a a name for that. It's... Is it anthropomorphism? Well done. Yes. Giving human characteristics. So Badger, you've got Badger and he's very serious and stoic and he's a bit gruff and he's probably the conventional leader of the group and he always takes charge when Toad misbehaves and Toad, who as I say was based on Kenneth Graham's son, he's the youngest and he's reckless and he's selfish and misbehaves. He loves vehicles and and he lives very lavishly in Toad Hall. Yes. And he's got the sports car. He has. And Ratty is the water vole, and I think he's the sort of social member of the group. And I always think he's very well mannered, and I think he keeps the group together. He's the yes. sort of co- the, the yeah. member of the team that keeps them together. And then there's the, always one. Isn't there's there? always one. There's always one who's the glue. And then there's Mole, and he lives very modestly. You know, he's quite timid. But he's the loyal member of the of the group, and he he's the one who's most forgiving of Toad's bad behaviour. And then I think by the end of the story, he actually becomes quite brave. Yes. So that you know yes. you follow that journey with Mole, and in fact the story takes place through the lens of Mole's life. So he's doing some spring cleaning. He takes a break. He goes down to the river and he meets Ratty. That's and, right. And that's, that's, that's right. how yes. the adventure begins. And for years. I was petrified of stoats and weasels and I'm sure it comes from this book because they are the baddies. And a lot of people will be familiar with Toad of Toad Hall 
Yeah. Which was the play that was uh, based on Wind in the Willows. And I discovered recently that that was actually written by A.A. Milne. I did not know that. Of Winnie the Pooh fame. So he wrote the play. What an interesting crossover. I know, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So Winnie the Pooh, House of Pooh Corner, When We Were Very Young, Now We Are Six, books you will have read, Virginia Sally, oh, books that I definitely I did. read I, over and over well. and over. How about you? I would say my predominant memories of reading when I was very young were being read from collections of poems, oh. interestingly. Oh. Things like The Child's Garden of Verse and that kind of thing. I have it here. Oh, isn't that amazing? I, do. I have a version here. Yes, and so and we had lots of those sort of things and I can still recite some of the poems and I can still see the illustrations from some of those the pages of those books, you know, I didn't have many but I just read them over and over and I can still hear my parents' voice reciting them. That's pretty and I'm, special. I'm really convinced that it's the rhythm and the rhyme of the poetry that sort of embeds them into the memory, mm. particularly when you're very young. And I think it's what made me love language and reading. So I have such a fond memory of, of children's poetry, which hasn't necessarily translated into adulthood. I mean, I love, I love William Butler Yeats and there are a few poets out and E.E. E. Cummings, but I'm not a big poetry reader now. But I think that is really what got me started, actually. And then I moved on to things like we, I loved being read Harry the Dirty Dog. Oh by Jean Zion. And in fact, we later acquired a rescue dog that we named Whiskey, who was a dark grey colour when we chose her in the pound, when we picked her up. And then we took her home and gave her a bath. Oh, and she, no. she became a fluffy white terrier. How incredible. Yeah. And a bit like Harry, the dirty dog, who started out as a black dog with white spots and after a bath became a white dog with black spots. It's the most delightful. And there's a three of them, I think. There's a beautiful series. Art imitating life. Yes. And I also loved books that were, I don't think they were necessarily written by Dr. Seuss, but they were published in that same series. And there was 10 apples up on top and a fly went by. And they also had a very strong rhythm. Your rhythm. I can still recite the whole mm. thing. I read them to my girls. Same thing. I, I just loved that sort of thing. And I had a very, I found, I was looking yesterday and had a very tattered book, 365 good night stories. I used to, it had a little story or a poem or something for, you know, one for every day of the year. And I read it over and over and over. And I will never throw it out. And I also remember we had Noddy by Enid Blyton and all the faraway tree books and the wishing chair books, which I really loved. And I was very interested recently to see that there was some controversy in Britain uh, because the Royal Mint had scrapped an idea to have a commemorative coin for Enid Blyton and some journalists had got the minutes of meetings from last year and it was discovered that there were objections to commemorating Enid Blyton on the basis that she was racist, sexist and homophobic. Mm. I have to confess, I'm struggling to think of how she conveyed homophobia in yes, the books because I know. they were so I know. chaste and yeah. tame. Yeah, I know. I think it definitely comes from the famous five, I think, in the relationship with the boys. The suggestion is that it comes from the relationship with the boys, but it's utterly ridiculous, isn't but it? But I, I have always understood that there were suggestions that Noddy and Big Ears were meant to be in a yes. in a relationship yes. and people objected to that back in the sort of 70s and 80s and, and they went out of publication. Mm. So I, I don't get it, but I, I have to say it, it's a mystery to me. But And also we have to 
the, the maybe things in the books that we would today find inappropriate. But I do think we have to really read them in the context of the times. Absolutely. I think it's sad if people at the Royal Mint don't recognise that Enid Blyton was a product of her time. Yes. And was probably no more racist than any other writer. Of that time. Of that time. Yeah, absolutely. Or any other public figure. You can think of many. I mean, I really love Anthony Trollope. And he has some pretty anti-Semitic descriptions of the diamond merchants Absolutely. in the Eustace yes. Diamonds, you know, describes the, the Jewish diamond merchants in a very unflattering way. And Charles Dickens uh, was yeah, absolutely. pretty unflattering. Yeah. And there are a lot of other authors and significant people from that era who were just a product of their time. And I think we should be able to read these authors against the background of the times they lived in and recognised that they just reflected the preponderance of views yeah, absolutely. at that time yeah. and that they were never challenged to think differently as we are today and many of them would undoubtedly have evolved to have a better perspective, I think, yeah, if they were absolutely. around in, say, 2019. So it's sad and I think it's a little bit short-sighted, but there you have it. I also really loved The Now We Are Six and The When We Were Very Young by A.A. Milne. I've got a very tatty copy of an A.A. Milne book here in which I've scribbled all over it and loved it to pieces. It's sort of falling apart, but I could never throw that out. And again, he he seemed to start with rhyme, didn't he, really? That's and, true. And so you think from an early childhood learning experience yes. that, yes, children yes. are introduced to rhyme yep. first in yep. terms of learning language. And I can still recite, you know, the Changing Guards at yes, Buckingham Palace. Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. They were delightful. And I also really loved my mother's beat-up and very treasured copies of the Millie Molly Mandy books oh, by yes. Joyce Lancaster Brisley. They they were gorgeous. And I got those for my girls when, when they were little. And as for the classics, we I don't think I had a lot of classic children's literature when I was young. And what we did read, I suspect, was possibly abridged yes. for really young children. I do remember Loving Little Women and Good Wives by Louisa May Alcott. Oh, I love Little Women. My sister and I used to decide which of us was oh, which of yes. the sisters. I think everyone yeah. does that, yeah. don't they? Yeah. And I loved Heidi by Joanna Spirey. Mm. And until recently, I always thought her name was Joanna Spry. So I just obviously read that wrongly for all my life. And I loved the Frances Hodgson Burnett books, mm. The Secret Garden and A Little Princess and so on. And I loved Peter Pan and The Jungle Book. Mm. Jungle Book was fabulous. Mm. Well, I was trying to think about a book that I really sort of delved into as a child. And, and the one that came to mind was The Borrowers. Ah. I love The Borrowers. That was by English author Mary Norton. That's one that just passed me by. I, yeah, never, no, I, I, loved it. I still haven't loved read that it. one. And it was followed by many more Borrowers books. It was Borrowers Afield, Borrowers Afloat, Borrowers Aloft. I could, yeah, I was going to say Aloft. Yes, yeah. and, the, and the last one was 1961. And then 20 years later, in 1982, she wrote Borrowers Avenged. It was quite extraordinary. I wonder if there, there was some interest from a publisher to try well, yeah, and Yeah, I haven't actually got to the bottom of how that happened and, and what happened in the intervening years. Mm. For those of you um, that have read it, you'll know that The Borrowers features a family of tiny people and they're the clock family. Pod, who's the dad, and he's a shoemaker. And Homily, who's the mum, she's very timid. And then they have this very spirited daughter called Arietti and she's 14. And they live secretly in the walls and floors of an English manor house and they borrow from oh, the big people right. as they refer to humans in order to survive. 
And so that they won't arouse suspicion, they only take things that they think won't be missed. So they take, you know, maybe a sheet of blotting paper or cigar boxes or thimbles or buttons or hat pins. How cute. I know, it's so cute. And they make an incredible home and they use these items. They sort of fit for purpose. And the dad, Pod Clock, he's quite a talented maker and he, he makes wonderful things with buttons and beads. And and they also have chess pieces. They've stolen chess pieces. Oh, gorgeous. You know, which are huge. For them, they're <laughs> huge. And... In the first borrower's book, which is just the borrowers, they're living under the floorboards in a home called the Cedars, which was believed to be based on the house that Mary Norton grew up in. And she grew up in, in the Great War and there wasn't a great deal for children to do. And she says that she had a lot of time on her hands and she used to sit in, I suppose, the room that they used to call the drawing room. And she'd imagine how little people would be hiding behind the great clock in the room and would have climbed up onto the furniture to take the leftovers food ah. after tea. And she was drawn to sort of this very careful examination of all the small minutiae in life. And she says that that's because she was extremely short-sighted. Ah. So she, her imagination was sort of governed by this nearsightedness. So mm. she could see all the things close by. Yeah. But whatever was in the was just distance a was a blur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was really interesting. And during the Second World War, she, she had four children, Mary Norton. She was, I think her husband had to move to New York. I can't remember the circumstances, but they took their four children and they were living in New York for, for World War II. Right. And these are the stories that she made up to keep her children occupied. So the borrowers actually won the 1952 Carnegie Medal. Gosh. And that medal still exists today. It's called the Kate Greenaway and the Silip Carnegie Medal, and it's still probably one of the most prestigious awards yes, in children's yes. fiction. So the tension and the plot of the book is focused on the interaction between the minute borrowers and human beings, ah. which they refer to as human beings. Oh, gorgeous. It's kind of cute. And it's mainly because of Arietti, because she's quite willful and she's the one who reaches out and makes a connection. Starts to have the relationship with the big people, particularly a boy in the manor house. And this makes Pod and Homily extremely nervous. Because that's the dramatic tension of the book, exactly. I imagine. They're, yeah. very, they're yeah. very nervous and it causes chaos in their lives and it means that they are forced to leave and oh. keep on the run and they move from one place to the other. So there is this sort of sense of their vulnerability yeah. which Pod and Homily really represent, the vulnerability and the fear that they feel because stuff's out of their control. And Arietti, of course, ironically, is the smallest one of all of them, but she's the one who's the, the bravest. The most bold. Yeah. yeah, the bravest and the least vulnerable. And Arietti um, can read and she's got her own little tiny books and she keeps a diary. And because she can read, she's the one that can recognise that they're probably going to be a dining breed. Oh. And so she's the educated one. She that is. Can she's see the educated what's one. What's the future Absolutely. holds? And, and finally, when they've left the manor house, subsequent books, you know, they live in a field and they meet lots of other borrowers and lots of characters. But eventually they settle down in the grounds of an old church in a cottage. And the subsequent books start to look into, uh, you know, the, their future adventures. But the second book, which is Borrowers Afield, starts from a completely different perspective. It starts from, from the perspective of the elder sister of the boy from the manor house, right. who is now an old lady. And she had actually been given Arietti's diary. 
And she inherits a cottage near the manor house and she goes to visit the cottage with a young relative, a young girl called Kate. And Kate hears about the borrowers. She's given the diary, Ariete's diary, and she's so anxious to find out more and more about them. And she builds a relationship with the old man who lives in the cottage, Tom, who has actually met the borrowers. Ah. And it's really about her piecing together what happened to them after they left the manor house. And it's interesting because the book opens with a reference to the fact that it is Kate that actually has finished the story of the borrowers having written it for her four children. Oh, wow. So Kate really takes on the role of Mary Norton. That's um, rather the lovely. Author. It's, it is. It's rather lovely. So that was my big book that I decided that I would uh, review. Ginny, what about you? Well, I then gave some thought to the books that I, like you, read, the ones I read to myself once I was able to read. And, of course, I loved Roald Dahl particularly Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I always wanted to find the golden ticket. Not that <laughs> yes. I had a lot Didn't of chocolate when I was a Didn't child. Didn't we all? <laughs> and I think Roald Dahl was an author who was also given a thumbs down by the Royal mm. Mint. More, I think, because of various comments he had made, not within his books but in public interviews and so on, that were really dreadfully anti-Semitic. Yes. And more recent times, so I think in the sort of 1950s, mm. and I think probably people judge him pretty hard harshly because yeah, they do. whilst we might forgive someone in the uh, 19th century for comments people expected more of in the 1950s, which I actually think is unfair because I think people were still incredibly racist and sexist and anti-Semitic and all sorts of things until, you know, very recently. But there you have and it. And some still are. Yeah, exactly. So then I went on to read all the boarding school books, the Mallory Towers mm. and St. Clair's, where they used to receive cakes in the mail and take hampers of food with them to boarding school. I mean, what was that all about? Jolly hockey sticks. <laughs> yeah, jolly hockey sticks. And then I moved on to the Secret Seven and the Famous <laughs> Five. And my absolute favourite Enid Blyton series was The Five Find Outers and Dog. Wow. I don't think they're as well known as the other two mystery series that she did. But these ones had Fatty, which is, you know, terribly politically incorrect. He, his actual name, I think, was something like Frederick something Trotterville. So his initials were Fat, so he was called Fatty. And he was sort of the leader of these five kids. And they he dressed up in these fabulous disguises that, you, you know, you could never tell who he was. And they went around the beautiful English village outwitting the buffoon of a local policeman, <laughs> Mr Goon, and they had a dog. And Lou, I had completely forgotten this, but guess what the dog's name was? Must be Buster. Buster. Is it really? Yes. <laughs> I opened this last night and went, oh my God, I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that. Uh, so I, I loved those. And then I moved on after those to Nancy Drew, mm. which were ostensibly written by someone called Carolyn Keane, but were in fact not written by Carolyn Keane at all. They were churned out by a publishing house wow. using a team of ghostwriters that changed over the years. And to be honest, uh, you can tell. Mm. I think they were conceived to be a sort of a pair to the Hardy Boys yes. mysteries. Yes, And they're published in a very similar style to the, the Hardy Boys, sort of female, female version. And they were all a bit more scary and there was a sort of actual physical violence that used to happen to them. But I loved these books. I mean, they haven't really... Neither the Fatty series nor the Nancy Drew have really stood the test of time for me in terms of the writing. I've, mm. I've reread them both as an adult and I've been a bit taken aback at how basic the writing <laughs> is. 
it really wasn't terribly good at all. But what was and is still very good was the feeling that Enid Blyton managed to evoke with her group of five kids and a dog solving mysteries in this English village with no parental interference at all. No yeah. supervision at all. Yeah, and Nancy Drew, I mean, the writing really wasn't very good, and but the concept of Nancy and her girlfriends, Bess and George, and their lovely boyfriend, Ned, driving around in this open-top sports car solving mysteries, it was just so fun. Yeah. And Carson Drew was this sort of distant and kindly father, and then there was Hannah Gruen, the housekeeper, who just provided beautiful food. And it was there's, all there's always a housekeeper that provides a, beautiful yeah, food. If only, <laughs> if only, <yeah. laughs> could do with one of those now. Yeah, and it was all very sort of sophisticated on the one hand, but also very chaste, yes, in a funny sort of way. And it was very interesting because as I was looking into this for today, an ad popped up on Twitter for a new, very modern Nancy Drew series on a. American network called CW. I don't know what your that technology is. is listening to you, Virginia. <laughs> You're probably right, and it looks really quite scary. It sort of goes Nancy Drew, <laughs> and then it looks really, you know, quite terrifying. You know, there's sort of darkened rooms and torchlight and ghosts, and it looks quite scary. And uh, it's got reviews saying it's quite chilling. So they've really vamped it up for the modern era. I am a Nancy Drew virgin. I have never read a Nancy Drew novel. So tell me, how old is she? Well, she varies. So in the 1950s, I think she was sort of 13. Okay. And the writers changed, as the writers changed over the years, she sort of, but she, when I read her, she was about 16, which at that age in America, you could drive. You could drive. She couldn't Absolutely. Do. So she had the sort of freedom of she being an did. adult. Yeah. She had the air of sophistication and yet she she wasn't too much older, so she was approachable and relatable. Yes. And she was, in most episodes, she was Titian-haired. She was a redhead, but sometimes she was blonde. <laughs> and I noticed in the series, the TV series, they've made her a redhead as well. And she was very fierce. And I think she might have an appeal because she's pretty feminist. Yes. Really gorgeous, actually. Yeah. So I, I But it's actually, also got a serial feel to it as well, like yes, it's a serial. Yes. Yeah. I, I will definitely watch it. Yeah, so will I. There have been other televisations mm. over the years. But back before things were streamed, so it was actually harder to get them in Australia. Yes. So okay. I haven't watched them, but um, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> It'll be sort of a chance to, you know, partly revisit my childhood. Because, I mean, literally, I'm sure you have the same thing, Lou. When you pick up one of these books, don't you find it just takes you straight back to childhood? Oh, no, absolutely. You can absolutely. almost go back. You're in your old bedroom as a kid. You just transported straight back. So although I didn't read a lot of classics as a child, I have gone back to some classics as an adult. And I did love Anne of Green Gables when I was a child. They, they were, they're so just beautifully, beautifully written. Beautifully written. I don't think I realised back then that there were eight in the series. I think I only knew there were three. So I found a lot of pleasure. I'm actually now, I'm working my way through because I've got a lovely set of the eight by a beautiful Canadian publisher. And so I'm up to number seven. And they sort of move into the next generation, Anne's children. And I've never read that far. I've read yeah. her as a young girl and woman, but I've never I've never read yeah. that far. I think some people lose interest because Anne comes out of them and it's more the children coming in, but I think they're delightful. And I often photograph those sets on my Lay Leave Instagram account and they they're always very popular. Yeah, always very popular. People love them. They're sort of the ultimate comfort read. And the other one that I've discovered, which I'd never read as a kid, or I don't think I did, I might have had it read to me, was The Railway Children, which is quite dated in its writing. Edith Nisbet. Yes. I've read a few of hers. 
but the dramatic peak of that story is so wonderful. It's so delightful that you sort of forgive any of the stodginess of the, the dated writing. Although, to be honest, it's a shame. The book has faded for me because since I saw the very old TV series with Jenny Agata, that's all I can see is yes, Jenny Agata standing on the, on the station. Yes. And did you know that they've done a new one and instead of Jenny Agata being the child, she's the adult? Oh, no, I Which didn't is know. a delightful yeah, touch. Yeah, that's lovely. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you should keep an eye out for that. So what have you been diving into this week, Lou? Well, I haven't been doing any cooking at all in the uh, diving in test kitchen. Not at all this week. So I thought that I might just mention a couple of food related things. You know that one of my favourite podcasts of all times is Table Manners, which oh, yes, has I love that. just finished its seventh series. Jessie Ware is a British musician and singer, and she, I suppose she's the celebrity of the podcast. And her mother, Helena, who's a social worker in London and also a fantastic cook. And the two of them invite celebrities into their home. They interview them and they feed them. And it's a simple as that but it's an incredibly funny and warm and relaxed environment Jessie's quite funny and she's warm and she creates this lovely relaxed environment for the guests and they sit down and have a meal with Jessie and her mother and it sort of lends itself to a sort of very conversational sort of interview style and in fact although Jessie is the more well-known of the two it's her mother Helena, who's known as Lenny, who's become uh, the popular one. Yeah, I love Lenny. I, you put me onto these, and I haven't listened to all of them. I'm going to, but I love her. She's and the bickering, gorgeous. the bickering between mother and <laughs> but daughter it's kind is of a fantastic. Gentle bickering, it's a very it? gentle it's, bickering. There's no, no yes. nastiness yes. in it. And you know, Jessie's just had a baby, and you know, you, the baby's in the background, her husband's in the background, and it, it's all very relaxed. But she, they managed to attract some sort of real international celebrities to interview. And one of the celebrities that they interviewed was during their fifth series which they actually took to New York and it is I hasten she's a cookery writer and a cook and her name is Samin Nosrat and Samin Nosrat is an Iranian girl who emigrated to well just before I think the revolution in Iran and grew up with an incredible cook for a mother um, she used to drive them around in the back of the car in California searching for sort of Persian ingredients. And she had no interest herself, some in, in cookery at all, until she went to Berkeley University to study English. And she fell in love. And she fell in love with a, a boy who, he was a poet and he loved food. And he used to talk to her about food. And he always told her that he wanted to go to the legendary um, Californian restaurant, Chez Penis, which was, I think at the time, run by Alice Waters. Yes, yes. And so they saved money in a shoebox every week. Oh. Uh, they put money aside and eventually they could afford to go to the restaurant. And she, Samin, goes to this restaurant and... I think they paid for the set meal, which was $200 or something, and the dessert is a chocolate souffle. And this lovely maitre d', a female maitre d', says to them, do you know how to eat a souffle? And she said, I didn't know how to eat a souffle. And the, the lady shows her that you're supposed to put a hole in the souffle and pour the sauce into the souffle. Oh, I did not know that. No, and it's a raspberry, mm, a raspberry sauce. And I think as they're eating it, the maitre d' comes up to them and says, did you enjoy it? And Samin responds, oh, it's absolutely delicious. I love it. But you know what would make it really really perfect would be a glass of milk and the lady's very gentle towards her and laughs 
and goes away and brings back glasses of milk, but she also brings back a glass of dessert wine to, wow. to sort of gently show them what she thinks is what the proper way with it. the proper way to eat a chocolate souffle. So she has this incredible sort of sensory experience at this restaurant and she just, from then on, she is just sold. Wow. So she goes away and she writes them a letter and thanks them for this incredible experience How that her incredible. and her boyfriend had and she begs them for a job. washing dishes, basically. And they say to her, well, that's fine, but you need to come in and you need to meet with our head of staff. (laughs) What a story. And the head of staff is the maitre d' that she had. So the maitre d' recognises her. The the glass of milk girl. Glass of milk girl and gives her a job washing dishes. And from then on, she just begs them to teach her to cook. Oh, I did not know any of this. Yeah, and so she learns to cook at Chez Panisse, which is an extraordinary story. She has her apprenticeship there and and so on and so on. And now, of course, many years on, she has written a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, uh, which I actually haven't seen the book. I will now be will be sourcing it because what I've seen is the new Netflix television mm. series, which is just sublime. It I've is watched the absolutely first beautiful. Episode. Beautiful. And it, which interestingly wasn't salt. No, it's fat. Yeah, they did it in a different order. But <laughs> I had exactly yeah. the same reaction. <laughs> but you know why not? But I and just loved her enthusiasm. Yeah, she's incredible. And she's so warm. Yeah, and she's she, the cutest thing. She is. She <laughs> absolutely is. And fat, of course, is based in Italy, and that's just beautiful, isn't it? That, I mean, the, oh. the the visuals of the recipes and the old lady and the grinding the pesto. pesto. Oh incredible. my goodness, made me incredible. want to go and make pesto immediately. Yeah. So I I thought that, um, and then I think for so the fats based in Italy. I think Japan is salt. Japan is salt because she's talking about the thousands of different salts in Japan and, you know, soy miso, but then there's thousands of of them. And then acid, she goes to Mexico. Right. And I haven't yet seen acid, so I'm really looking forward to that. So I really highly recommend it. And apart from anything else, even if you're not into food or cooking, it's just a beautiful visual series to watch because of the scenery. And, yes, the and, scenery is Yeah, and the people she meets mm. as well. It's it really, really makes you want to go to yeah, those places. Yeah, it really does, really does. What have you been diving into, Virginia? I've been, interestingly, it's one of those funny serendipitous things. I discovered a podcast called 99% Invisible. Mm. I think it might have been quite a highly rated one. And so I thought, oh, that, that looks quite interesting. I had no idea what it was about. And I stumbled on, I clicked on two podcasts that had very disparate titles. And interestingly, they both ended up being about the same thing. The first one is called Weeding is Fundamental. <laughs> and it's all about libraries clearing out old books. Ah. And in particular, the San Francisco public library, which was damaged in an earthquake in 1989. And the chief librarian was a guy called Kenneth Dowlin. And he saw this as an opportunity to get rid of hundreds of thousands of books. And during the earthquake, about half a million books were all dumped on the floor and ruined. And the building wasn't safe. And so they had to relocate the books for the public browsing into another area, but they were short of space. And normally when libraries are culling old books, they use a, an established set of guidelines with the acronym MUSTI, uh, which is M for misleading or factually inaccurate. So things that have been superseded. Yes. U is for ugly, uh, so anything that's, you know, a bit too tatty. And if it's, okay. a, if it's a popular it's physical book, state. Yes, yeah. it could be either. If it's yeah. tatty from lots of use, they'll just buy a newer 
edition of it and get rid of the old edition. S is for superseded, so old manuals and things that... Uh, T is for trivial and Y is for your collection has no need for this book. And those two are very subjective. I was going to say trivial is, yeah. is very subjective, isn't yeah. it, really? It's quite difficult for librarians to work out what fits into those categories. But after the earthquake, the librarians were ordered to put coloured slips in every book uh, there were green, orange and red. I think green was were checked out in the last year, but red meant that it, uh, the book hadn't been checked out in over two years. And Kenneth Dowlin saw the potential of the internet and, he, and its impact on libraries, and he saw the future of this new library that they had to build after the earthquake as an opportunity to get rid of lots of books. He, he really saw a future without books. He was probably in some ways ahead of his time. I think he's still around. They tried to get him to come on the podcast and he declined an interview because he doesn't come out that favourably, I suppose. But what happened was, what was really interesting was that there were 27 librarians, obviously a big library, yes. and they became guerrilla librarians. And so they began to effectively sneak in and change the coloured slips to save the books, which were being... Shipped. So they were reacting... Yes, oh, secretly, okay. completely yes. secretly. And then they stepped it up and they actually used to, some of them snuck in and stole the books. Wow. Uh, because they were being trucked out in the hundreds of thousands. Oh, can I ask you, where were they going? What was going to happen? Were they going to, to be the pulped? To the they were going to be pulped. But they were going to the landfill. It's wonder that they didn't try and exchange mm. them with other libraries. Mm. Because it for was, what was no, relevant to guy, one might be relevant to another. That's right. But this guy just said, books are over. <laughs> I know. It's a, I mean, he's just anathema to anyone who loves books. He's sort of like evil person number one. And what all of these 27 librarians did was they, they tried to do a petition and ask him to stop the cull. Then they started stealing the books. Well, what they called it was uh, saving the books by taking them to their homes. So they had, <laughs> you know, boxes and boxes and they recruited um, a famous author to come in and help them and he began a court case. It was really interesting and the big tipping point was that he wanted, Kevin Dowland wanted to get rid of the card catalogue, you know those beautiful wooden card catalogues which are the only evidential record of the books that had all been tipped or taken to the dump. But also a very important archive of yeah. when they'd come into the library, yep. you know, when they'd been borrowed, because yep. that's kind of very important data of, for libraries. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I'm not going to say what happened next, wow. but it's a really great podcast. Yes. I really, so that one was called Weeding is Fundamental. So I really recommend that one on the 99% Invisible podcast. And the other podcast, also on 99% Invisible, which I stumbled on, I saw a heading that said Palaces for the People. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And that was also about libraries. And that's um, an interview with a social scientist who looked at the phenomenon that occurred after a heatwave in Chicago in 1995. It was a terrible disaster and more than 700 people died as a result of this heatwave. And they could see that the poor neighbourhoods on the south side had the highest death rates, which they expected, but there were some neighbourhoods that should have suffered and didn't. Mm. And they, in fact, did better than some of the wealthy suburbs on the north side, and they couldn't work out what made those different. And they realised that the places that had low death rates had a really good 
social infrastructure. They had good footpaths or sidewalks, as they call them, and good roads, and they had libraries and shops and institutions and things that drew people out into public life. So what happened when the heatwave struck, people all knew each other and they knew who was vulnerable, who was lonely, whose door to go and knock on. Because they'd met at the infrastructure. They'd met them and they knew their face. And they said, what about so-and-so, we better go and check on him. Mm. And the areas with high death rates had a very poor social infrastructure. And so what happened was people stayed home, which was apparently a deadly thing to do. And they hadn't met each other. They hadn't met each other. And they didn't know to go in, knock on the door and say, are you okay? Come out into the air conditioning or whatever. So he recounts a story about various town planners who took all this data and proposed a resilience centre and they said to him, it's going to be a really nice building in a, in a centre of a community and we're going to have it open as much as possible. It's going to be spacious and it's going to be staffed by people who are going to be aggressively welcoming and the social scientists looked at the architects and the town planners and he said, uh... Well, that sounds great, but have you guys ever heard of a library? (laughs) And basically he said they've just reinvented the wheel. And it was interesting because, you know, many people think of the library as a relic. But I did think, Lou, you and I recently went to an event at our state library where Dr. Jeff Gallup gave a talk about libraries. And it it sort of made me panic a bit because I thought, oh, goodness, how do you even quantify the value of a library? um, So I was really delighted by this. And I thought, obviously, social scientists are onto this and they they realise that it's an integral part of social infrastructure. And it doesn't, a library doesn't have to be limited to books. He goes on to talk about how nowadays some of them have rooms where they store clothing and so people can come in and borrow them for job interviews and that sort of thing. There's all sorts of other things that libraries can do. And if you think about it, it's probably one of the few places where the homeless or the disenfranchised can actually walk in, sit down, you know, pick up a book, pick up a magazine, And now, of course, they can have cups of tea or whatever it is they want. But they really are one of the last places where you can drop in and no one will ask any questions. Absolutely. And that happens a lot with our state library. Mm, It does. And they can come in from the cold and be Mm. warm, Mm. sit in a sunny couch in in a window spot or on a very hot day in Perth, go into the air conditioning and stay as long as they want and no one's going to boot them out. No. Mm. The episode goes on to talk a lot more about social infrastructure. It's really interesting and I would recommend that one. Oh, excellent. Well, seeing as you mentioned libraries today, I just thought I'd briefly mention the library book by Susan Orleon, oh, who yes. is the author of The Orchard Thief. And she has written this lovely book about the great fire which happened in the Los Angeles Library oh, in 1986. Yes. Yeah. It started in the book stacks. And it follows the police investigation into the chap who was suspected of having started the fire. So, yeah, that's just another yeah, library-related yes, book that someone yes. might like to read. It's really interesting. Mm. Oh, that's great, Lou. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, Whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us. 
because that will mean we can grow our audience. Shaping up, shaping up.